Welcome to Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. Today we talk to David Patrick King about faith-based nonprofits and how evangelical Christianity specifically has helped shape America's philanthropic landscape. Let's go. Givers, Doers, and Thinkers introduces listeners to the fascinating people and important ideas at the heart of American civil society. We speak with philanthropists, nonprofit leaders, social entrepreneurs, historians, journalists, and anyone else who will help us understand contemporary civil society's achievements and failures. We also sprinkle in practical advice for nonprofit leaders and fundraisers. My name is Jeremy Beer, and thanks for joining us. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. Today, I am pleased to speak with David Patrick King, the Karen Lake Buttry Director of the Lake Institute on Faith and Giving at the Indiana University Lilly Family School of Philanthropy, where David is also Associate Professor of Philanthropic Studies. David is an American religious historian whose interests include how the religious identity of faith-based nonprofits shapes their motivations, rhetoric, and practice. He is also the author of God's Internationalists, World Vision, and the Age of Evangelical Humanitarianism, a very good book published by the University of Pennsylvania Press just a short while ago, 2019. And uh, we will be talking to David a good bit about that book. And finally, David is co-editor of a forthcoming book titled Religion and Philanthropy in the United States, uh, which I think is coming out later this year. So welcome, David. Thanks, Jeremy. Uh, am I right, first of all, about that last book coming out uh, a little bit later in 2021? Oh, we hope. You know, it, it, we'll, we'll see if it makes it under the wire, but, um, <laughs> but we're, we're, we're hoping that way. Yeah. That's great. You are in a unique position to talk about uh, religion and philanthropy, which is sort of a, becoming a common theme of this podcast, not necessarily intentionally, um, but it certainly has become a common theme. Uh, thanks to your position at the, at the um, Lilly Family School of Philanthropy which, if people don't know, is like the leading school of philanthropy uh, in the United States, if not the world, which I'm sure it is in the world. Um, so I'm going to pick your brain first about that and what you, you learn through uh, your work at the Lake Institute or just about religion and philanthropy generally. And then we'll uh, talk about God's internationalists because uh, it struck me in reading the book uh, that America's philanthropic culture would be virtually unimaginable without the influence of evangelical Christianity. And, and world, world vision story seems like a good way to, to sort of get at that larger story, which I suppose is partly why you wrote the book. <laughs> yeah, it was a part of it. And I think it's a great way to get into those big conversations. It's a great set of questions. Very good. So let's talk about the Lake Institute first. Just tell us, first of all, why, why does the Lake Institute exist? What does it do? Yeah, well, well, Lake Institute is embedded in the School of Philanthropy here at Indiana University, and Lake Institute's been around for about 20 years um, with the distinct mission of fostering greater understanding of a dynamic relationship between faith and giving. We do that through research uh, and scholarship. We do that through educational programs and a lot of public understanding kinds of work. So a lot of research on Faith-based nonprofits like congregations, for instance, that are oftentimes underexplored in what we know about um, about the nonprofit sector. You know, most congregations are not filing 990 forms like other nonprofits. We don't know how much money comes in or where does it go. We spend a lot of our time, though, in education and training, working with clergy and faith-based nonprofit leaders, fundraisers, and finding that um, that intersection between 
faith and, and sort of the, the religious traditions that many people uh, see as, as, as primary and why they give and how to make those connections about the, the distinct assets that our religious traditions bring to the nonprofit sector and to philanthropy. And we want to raise those big questions, the same kind of questions that you raise here on this podcast about what's the future of, of civil society, how do uh, organizations um, fit into that, what does it mean for donors and individuals and the future of our American um, faith communities and, and the civic good or public good more broadly. Yeah. And well, okay. So let's just jump into some of those big questions. I'd love to get your opinion uh, and your insight in some of these. Um, one of the things, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, that the, the, that the Lilly uh, Family School of Philanthropy does is, is publish Giving USA every year, right? Um, I'm correct about that. You guys, that's you. Right. Well, we, yeah, we, we do a lot of the, we do the number crunching and, and, and writing and produce it with the Giving USA Foundation, but we do, yeah, all the, all the research that goes. That's right. You, yeah. You guys are the engine that makes it. <laughs> right. <laughs> it wouldn't happen without you. It's a, it's a, a tremendous resource. I'm sure many of the listeners uh, to this podcast know about it if you don't and are interested in the numbers behind American philanthropy. Um, you, know, you just Google Giving USA and you can, you can, Get the summary uh, statistics for free, and if you want the the big old deep dive document, there's um, some sort of fairly reasonable uh, price uh, for getting it. But one of the things we learn from Giving USA every year, and again, you correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, David, is a religion is you, it, you break it up by sectors, giving sectors, right? Like where is the money going? And religion is by far still the biggest piece of the giving pie uh, in the United States. Um, so my question for you is. How much longer will that be the case? <laughs> is that, is that going to change in your mind or not going to change? Um, what, what are the trends? Uh, I think that's a, I mean, it's a great question. And uh, given USA, and, and this follows a lot of you know how um, the sector is broken down into you know, eight or nine subsectors, uh, religion being one of those. Others like you know arts and arts and culture, education, social services. Uh, international humanitarian or development work um, would fit into that as well. So in all those different sectors, religion uh, by far is the largest. And um, this past year, uh, religion made up about 29% of all giving uh, in the United States uh, as they were the recipients of that much giving. Uh, the second largest sector education was around 13, 14%. So religion is not only the biggest, it's, it's double. <laughs> The next biggest sector. Um, that's the good news. Uh, the bad news is that that religious giving sector subsector has continued to uh, dwindle as a as a share of the overall pie of giving in America for the last several decades. Um, as long as we've been tracking this since the late seventies and eighties, uh, even into the eighties, religion made up uh, well over half. Mm. Really, I didn't know it had been that high. That's that's extraordinary. Yeah, and it's and it's not the gift. Uh, it's not going back to the 1950s to today. You know, it's more recently in the 80s. Um, there are a variety of reasons for that. Um, one is the specific way we define religious giving, which basically is giving to congregations, denominations, missionary societies, and religious media. Take for instance uh, Christian radio, let's say. Um, but that really is is. Is an important part is the bedrock of a lot of those religious organizations. There are over three hundred and fifty um, thousand congregations, you know, um, 
sprinkled across every big city, rural, suburban space in America. But think of all of those religious organizations that do uh, work in social services. Think about international, think about World Vision um, that would not be labeled as, as uh, a part of that religious subsector that'd be cast out. And think about all the Christian colleges or high schools, um, Catholic social services, all of that spread out. If we That's not founded in the religion category, that's all education or, or relief. Right. So all of that sprinkled into other places like relief or social services or education or healthcare. So thinking of, of all of those religious organizations that don't count, even narrowly defined, religious giving is about 29, 30%. It's been about a third for the last decade. That is shrinking. So to your original question, how much longer do you expect this to you know, be the case to, for religion to be that largest sector? I I think for another generation, you know, I think that'll, it'll change, um, not immediately, but I do think it'll, it'll continue to pull down, um, as institutional religious communities change, as the rise of the unaffiliated grows, as there's more and more diversity across different religious traditions. Um, I think that share of giving to Religious giving, which is mostly congregations, will continue to dwindle a bit over time. But I think faith-motivated giving to all the types of organizations we talked about that are that are um, labeled in other spaces, um, I think will continue to, to grow. What? Um, well, that's interesting. Do you think that will continue to grow? <clears throat> because it would seem that if you don't have the sort of foundational. Um, uh, identity giving affiliation with a congregation, uh, as you put it, um, you may not be as motivated to give to a, uh, um, a Christian relief organization or, uh, you know, a, uh, whatever, a, a Jewish school or whatever it might be. Is that, you don't think that will necess- be the case necessarily? Well, I, I, th- I do think it's, it's a both and. So I think one of the reasons for the decline in religious giving in that sector is, is um, you know, rising, un- uh, r- rising disaffiliation, you know, the rise of, of the nuns, those who might say that they're none of the above when asked about their religious identity. Um, but, but at the same time, that's one piece of the puzzle. You know, uh, other pieces are just the you know, people are less likely to attend um, as often. There's a lot of competition for your, you know, for your time on a weekend. Uh, and that's increasingly uh, apparent as we are, you know, we, we haven't been in person or many congregations have not been in person for a year now, or they've experimented with a variety of, of options. Um, so I do think that congregations uh, in that religious giving sector will, will face greater competition from other faith-based nonprofits. I think other nonprofits, take a World Vision, for example, oftentimes are somewhat clear in their mission. And making the case for why they're the not only a, a great recipient for your for your donations, but also have a very clear and compelling mission. Where a congregation, for example, has a much more um, a, a broad mission. They do a lot of things, right? They have to have worship and do education, outreach, evangelization. Um, so I, I do think those faith-based nonprofits will. Um, continue to grow or to sustain themselves from from donors where faith is an important motivating factor. And from what we're learning is that donors are willing to give to faith-based organizations um, 
despite that faith-based identity, uh, if the mission aligns there. Are, are there, um, in your opinion, are there, uh, obviously there are very broad, large, powerful historical forces at play in uh, contributing to the rise of unaffiliated nuns uh, with respect to religious identity. But are there uh, technical ways <laughs> to, uh, to speak in that language, maybe, um, that congregations could could there are things they could learn from the rest of the nonprofit world, for instance, or even uh, business world um, in in reducing that um, outflow uh, of people from the congregations? In other words, is it just is there are there things that can be done to counteract those broad historical forces, or is this just a Grin and Barrett kind of moment for religious congregations. Yeah, it's a great question, and and I don't know if I have the full answer, but I, you know, just just having thought about this a, a good bit, I, I think uh, this is a larger force that we you know that we've seen. It, it, America is not Western Europe, but you can sort of see some of those secularization trends more broadly historically um, that I think will also that are also um, taking place in the United States as well. That being said, though, I think there are plenty of ways that congregations can engage and do a better job in, in both nurturing um, the faith traditions of those in their community, passing them down across generations. So I think the formation, uh, particularly in family units and, and equipping families and, and communities and neighbors um, to, to be able to um, sort of nurture that faith for the next generation. We know that that family unit is is, is the most important uh, for uh, ra- maintaining that religious identity, um, teaching it, and also and also that philanthropic giving identity as well. So the other thing that congregations can do is just like good nonprofits know how to do is to ask their donors or their constituents what's important. So and and sort of moving away from a, a sense of obligation and. We need you to give out of a sense of duty. We need to, you to engage in this way. What were the passions and the value sets for those in your community? Think about sort of uh, moving outside the walls of one's congregation into community, whether it's down the road or the other, you know, um, locally or across the world. And engaging that way, um, nurturing donors or constituents inviting them to take part in a more active and less passive way, I think, uh, are the kinds of questions that congregations need to address. And then finally, breaking down that sort of that silo or barrier from uh, the nonprofit or the business world or, you know, thinking about, you know, it's uh, the kinds of questions about economics or entrepreneurship or ways to invest one's resources, um, Congregations have a lot of those assets, and they're not oftentimes asking uh, the people who <laughs> do this so well on a daily basis how to engage and uh, engage in mission uh, and make transformation happen in their communities and around the world. Yeah, I, I assume <clears throat> those are all good ideas. I, I assume you don't uh, are not referring to asking your uh, congregation, you know, are they passionate about the Trinity or the Torah? Uh, you're, you're, that's not the sort of thing you necessarily want feedback on uh, you know, doctrine stuff, but you know, what's, what's it, where, where are they finding, where are the challenges in their lives? How could the congregation be of help to them? You know, what sorts of issues are they dealing with that are just, um, you know, really, really problematic and difficult? 
Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I, in, in some sense, you know, those who have been formed in a religious tradition, you know, have you know, particular theological beliefs, let's say, or practices. But, but translating that into life, I think, is the important bridge to be built. So, you know, how does that impact me and my family or in my job or our own mission? How can we really engage um, the work around us? And to build those bridges and, and sort of um, break down any divides that might exist between kind of the, a Sunday and a Monday, um, but also thinking about how that, you know, uh, I think that translation has to happen um, and people are craving it. They're looking for it. They're finding it in other places, but who's better um, situated to help make that, to work through that meaning making uh, of uh, communities and individuals then? and those religious um, communities that have formed us. So as we think about um, uh, notwithstanding the things that congregations could do uh, to um, uh, forestall uh, decline in numbers uh, or reverse a decline in numbers, um, but, uh, assuming uh, they <laughs> are not successful and to the extent they aren't successful in that, it, it strikes me that so churches are not just another kind of association we have in America. They are themselves sites of association. They're association makers, right? Other associations find their homes or are birthed out of uh, congregations. Um, so what, yeah, have you thought about, you know, what happens, I see I've thought about, but I have an answer for, you know, what happens when that sort, when like the foundational association sorts of deteriorate, what happens to all the rest of the kinds of voluntary associations that have made America sort of different uh, than the rest of the world? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I, I think it's a worry that, that stays with me um, uh, many days because uh, while I am optimistic about um, the creativity uh, of congregations to sort of to reinvent themselves or to um, to translate or to, to build those bridges that we talked about earlier, there's plenty that, 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 that will not. And it, it's tough to turn that tide. Um, and I do think these trends, you know, um, will be with us as far as uh, greater um, rising um, unaffiliation. And I think you're right that so not only do many nonprofits or associations uh, are, are embedded or are burst out of congregations, um, Take, for instance, or tutoring programs, clothes closets, food pantries, arts and culture, music, you know, <laughs> polling places, for goodness sake, uh, are all kind of rooted in congregations. But there is that sense of formation and social, um, you're, you're socialized into that associational identity, oftentimes in congregations. It was the first place I, you know, I oftentimes had leadership responsibilities, you know, as a, as a kid or as a youth that was, were able to, you know, take up the offering, uh, ask to usher, uh, you know, teach or preach and on youth day. I mean, these are the kinds of things that form our um, um, individuals as leaders and also shape them as community civic um, members as well. I think that we'll have, there will have to be other outlets for some of that work. Um, but I do think Congress will, We'll be, we'll be missing something and we'll have to, uh, I think those are the kinds of questions that many civic communities have not quite understood the, the, the larger value of congregations in that space. 
Right. It does seem like the, the, to the extent that congregations are assigned a value by the larger civic community, it is, it's a, it's a, um, sort of a strictly moralistic one or even an, an individualistic sort of value. Like it could be, you can provide, you know, a sense of meaning to people or you can you know, help make people less monstrous, uh, than they otherwise would be. But not this associate, this, this civic, uh, purely civic value of, um, of the sort of strong associational identities created by churches. Yeah. And there are some good organizations that are trying to, to try to sort of um, name that more specifically, you know, one would be, you know, partners for sacred places that really works a lot with historic congregations in particular. And one scholar, um, Ram Kanan at the university of Pennsylvania has kind of created a number of studies that look at the halo effect of congregations. Uh, and you can kind of Google these short reports if, if you're interested, but, Almost the economic footprint of congregations, people who come into the city, let's say, uh, calculating the value of that green space. Uh, oftentimes, they're the, they're, they have a number of arts or um, events or you know, the, uh, the economic um, benefit of so many nonprofits uh, renting or sharing spaces within a congregational building for the week. If they had to pay market rate for that, for those um, for those offices that would be um, really difficult for many nonprofits. So there are, there are folks who are trying to sort of uh, <laughs> to calculate some of those features of congregations beyond the kind of, uh, if you care about, you know, this moralistic or this theological work come here. But uh, I think it's, they're not in the minority. They're not in the majority. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Um, what are the um, because you talk to donors and you deal with donors somewhat uh, givers to use the phrase of our podcast title? Um, what what are the biggest concerns that they have about religious institutions or congregations, maybe in particular, and they're giving to those institutions? Um, and, and maybe the reverse too, like what are the the faith based nonprofit leaders you deal with? What are their biggest concerns about um, their donors and their givers? Yeah, I think, I mean, this is a question we love to spend time with. And I, and I love your focus on givers because, you know, that's, that's, that's in our Lake Institute faith and giving name or uh, framing as well. Um, but I would say oftentimes donors or givers, uh, in working with congregations in particular, oftentimes worry that their congregations may not, um, know how to be the best stewards of those gifts or they rely on a handful of donors too much. Um, or sometimes that they, you know, uh, they can't handle the kind of giving capacity that they might be able to, um, to engage with uh, a congregation on. And so typically congregations are, uh, rely on individual regular giving, you know, path through passing the plate on a, on a Sunday morning or over the, over a weekend, um, and are not as, as good with nurturing, uh, long relationships, building major donors, um, one thing that I think that congregations really often miss is uh, plan giving, uh, because oftentimes, I mean, what better place oftentimes for someone who's been engaged in a faith community for 30, 40 plus years who are, who's a regular giver? Um, maybe they're, you know, uh, uh, that scale is not sort of, you're not going to be one of the top five biggest uh, donors or givers on a regular basis, but you've, you could give a very meaningful legacy gift um, that would 
continue your giving to that organization for years to come, but congregations have oftentimes shied away from it. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, you're spot on. Um, do you see, is this changing? I guess this is the question for you. You would know, like, is that, are these practices starting to change where congregations, churches, synagogues, et cetera, are seeing that they could be doing a lot of the same things that, like you point out, the healthcare institution is doing, the hospital, the college are doing, uh, and, and, and do it just as well? I think uh, this is, I mean, this is, this is kind of the apologetic for the work that we do on a daily basis. We are trying to make that case. Um, I think we're doing this, you know, I, I think we've been making steady progress and it's not just us, plenty of other folks have well, uh, as are doing this as well. Um, I think it, it's a mindset, a mindset shift for many religious leaders to think about them themselves uh, and their roles, uh, stewarding and fundraising and developing uh, givers and donors. They don't see it oftentimes as part of their work. And I think that's a, a great loss because I think they have all the skill sets that good fundraisers have. They're great listeners. They are able to connect and ask discerning questions. All of, you know, developing long-term relationships, all the things that, fund, that, we, that we want fundraisers to do and be religious leaders oftentimes excel in those particular soft skills as well. But they see that as not a part of their work. Um, it's not what it's, it's maybe the work they have to do in order to do the work that they want to do. And I think that's off base because the way we think about fundraising um, is that it's nurturing uh, those, those discerning uh, passions and values in our donors and enabling them and inviting them to, to engage in and um, being on mission with us or to supporting the cause that they also believe in. And I think. Shifting that mindset um, is the wave that will need to happen for many religious organizations because the economic models of giving in the regular obligatory type of way for religious organizations is not dead, but it's, it's not dying. sustainable. Yeah. <laughs> and, you're, and you feel it actually in the, uh, it's, a, it's a feeling I've had in the pews that David, you know, like it's just, there's, um, yeah, you, that might, it just doesn't work anymore. It doesn't even, even to someone who's very sympathetic like me out there, it's like, well, uh, coming at me from like sort of obligation, sort of uh, uh, rhetorical tactic just doesn't, you know, exactly light me up. Well, and I, I mean, just on top of that, one more thing is that oftentimes the religious literacy within our congregations is much lower than it was several generations ago. So you can, you can, re, you can remind me that what my, religious duty or obligation might be, but I, but I don't know for often, you know, I don't know what a tithe might be. I don't know what I'm, the expectations that I should even be following. And so, um, that language that we sometimes perpetuate doesn't necessarily hit, um, with many of the folks who may actually be engaging within our communities. Um, so we have to find new language, richer language and, uh, developing those long-term relationships and, and talking about it. Yeah, I think people are willing to talk about it. They just, and, and they crave those conversations about money and meaning, but we let them slip by without asking. I think you're right. Uh, David Patrick King, uh, director of the Lake Institute on Faith and Giving. We're going to be right back with David and talk about his book, God's Internationalists. We'll be right back. Right. Uh, we are back for a practicality with my friend and colleague, Abigail Alberti. How are, how are you today, Abigail? 
I'm doing good. Jeremy, how are you? I'm doing well, except that I can't say your name, apparently. Abigail <laughs> Alberti. Abigail Alberti. It's kind of hard to say. Yeah, it's like alliterative, but also you kind of stumble over it. I totally get it. You used to be Abigail Clevenger, and that was that was significantly easier for me for some reason. But don't, don't tell your husband. <laughs> uh, Abigail uh, is a senior consultant with us here at American Philanthropic, and I'm just going to talk a little bit about planned giving. Um, which can be a little bit intimidating if you are, I'd say, maybe a little smaller nonprofit. Um, but I think it's one of those things that basically I think almost anyone can do. Is that the case, Abigail? Should everybody have have some sort of program when it comes to planning giving? Yes, they definitely should. Um, and uh, let me tell you why. So, so it's really easy. Um, despite sort of, um, you know, you think planning giving, you think like you know, difficult, you know, tax situations and that sort of thing. But the vast majority of plant gifts are actually quite simple. Um, but in terms of like, you know, you're a small, small nonprofit, you know, should I have a plant giving program? They're really easy to set up. They're low cost. They're easy to maintain. Um, the other thing, you know, it, it, you know, if you're small in particular, if you, um, you know, the other reason for setting up a plant giving program now is that it's a long-term investment. It can take years for you to realize plan gifts that are made, you know, today. So, so you want to start now, you know, to have a program in place to kind of uh, reap, uh, reap the fruit uh, years from now. And there's a lot of money going, uh, being transferred from generation to generation as we've been hearing about for years now, but that really is starting to happen. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and yes, absolutely. So the, uh, the transfer of wealth from the baby boomer generation in particular is, is sort of upon us. Um, you know, last year with the pandemic, you know, just sort of general volatility in the world, um, we have seen the significant uptick in um, online will and bequest from online will and bequest creators, um, increased response rates to plan giving communications, that sort of thing. So it seems to be, you know, on donors' minds is something that more and more, do- more and more donors are interested in. So okay, so you, I think it's, pretty, it's clear you should you know you should do this <laughs> as part of building out your development program if you're a nonprofit organization. But I mean, how hard is it? I mean, is there something? Is there other simple things people can do to sort of get something reasonable in place? Yeah, absolutely. So there's um, a few of very simple uh, tactics that I'd recommend, and 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 those are these. So uh, number one, first use the right language. So. Um, the term plan giving is actually, uh, that's like jargon for fundraisers. Like most donors don't know what that means. So don't necessarily use that term uh, and talk about, you know, gift and estate planning, that sort of thing. Um, so uh, that, that's sort of like, you know, just for your own purposes. Um, so the, really the first step is to develop some messaging. You know, I, you know, one or two paragraphs um, that kind of casts a compelling vision for what it means to leave a legacy, you know, to leave, uh, to, to leave, um, uh, to remember this organization in your will or estate, um, in an enduring way, you know, how is this going to make a difference for years to come, you know, so, so make it really, you know, meaningful, you know, don't use transactional language, that sort of thing. Um, put it on your website, you know, just, you know, create a little section on your donate page. It doesn't need to be elaborate, you know, put those couple paragraphs on there, you know, put a contact person's name. Um, you know, you might list some of the different plan giving vehicles, you know, don't, don't list 20, you know, <laughs> list like two or three, you know, I can leave this organization in my, uh, you know, you don't make a bequest gift um, to this organization. I can, uh, um, you know, uh, they can be the beneficiary of my life insurance policy or, you know, maybe another option there. So keep it, keep it really simple and basic. Um, and then look at your communications calendar and just add in really just one, you know, you, you can do one or two, um, but just like one plan giving themed mailer a year, it can be a short, you know, letter, 
where you're kind of casting the vision for why, what a plan gift means for the organization, um, you know, with a, you know, with a, with a reply device that, you know, really just asks for like, yes, I've remembered this organization in my will or estate, or I want more information. Um, and send, here's, this is actually really important. Send that letter to a lot of people in your house file. So not just those who have given, uh, the highest gifts, but those who have given the most frequently and the longest, regardless of gift size. So like even your $25, $100 donor who's given to you for the last, you know, four, five, six, you know, 10 years or so, um, those are actually really good plan giving prospects. Right. They're great um, plan giving prospects. Yeah. Actually. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They might not be able to give you like $10,000 cash outright, but they can leave you in your will. Um, so, so kind of really that's it. I mean, you should also just include on your general reply form, like on your regular house file mailings, just a quick little checkbox. I remembered, you know, this organization in my will or estate, or I want more information about, you know, doing that, you know, optional things. If you have a budget, you can design some, you know, really attractive collateral pieces about, you know, plan giving for your organization. Again, that's optional though. You don't have to do that. Um, you know, yeah. Just getting going, having, uh, doing a mailing, have a name, you know, put it on your website, uh, maybe name a legacy society. Usually that's the sort of name these things have. And just plant the seed with people. It is amazing. We see it with our clients, how the fruit that that reaps, just those simple steps that can be done in a couple of days. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And then it kind of, you kind of just, it just runs on autopilot. You know, you don't have to do a lot of, you know, it's very easy to maintain, um, and, and we do find it's amazing. Like, sure. So some people might say like, why, you know, I get planned gifts. Like, why do I have to have a formal program in place? You know, well, because we see that you actually will get more gifts by having a program in place. Like more. people. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you're, you're telling your donors, like there's more than one way to support our mission. You know? Yeah. If you don't tell your donors that you want such gifts, you're not going to get many of them. Uh, but shockingly, if you tell them, we would like such gifts, <laughs> you get more. It, it's really amazing how that works. Abigail, thank you very much. Yeah, you're very welcome. All right, we are back with David Patrick King, the Karen Lake Buttry Director of the Lake Institute on Faith and Giving at the Indiana University Lilly Family School of philanthropy. I should note, I'm particularly happy to speak with David because I am also an alumnus of Indiana University, although um, not a particularly proud basketball fan uh, these days. Uh, football is really coming on strong, though, so I'm going to hang my hat on that. Uh, the Lilly Family School, I should say, is at the campus in Indianapolis, in case you're going to drop by sometime. Um, David, uh, let's talk about uh, God's international. This will just sort of shift gears here. I, I'm sure these are complimentary concerns on your part, but it's a really good book. Uh, it's a, essentially a history of world vision um, nested within a, a, a history in a way of, of evangelical humanitarianism, international evangelical you know, international relief efforts and things like that. Um, what led you to undertake this topic? Well, it, 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 it's, 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 you know how long books sometimes take to yeah. write. So it's hard to think back and say, what, 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 what was the reason for that? Uh, but for me, I think I've always been interested in, uh, you know, as an American religious historian who really is interested in global questions. Um, you know, in college, uh, I spent uh, a summer overseas doing mission work in Gaza and the Middle East. And that really sort of opened as a kid from 
from the South, from Alabama as, as a Baptist kid, sort of just opening up the world to the way things looked was really, it was a, uh, a game changer for me and sort of um, how I saw the world and the, what I wanted to do um, through my vocation. And uh, often, so it was around missions at first, but what I wanted to sort of partly see is how uh, into the 20th century, the growth around relief and development work, um, re- faith-based relief and development work was, I think, key and oftentimes um, not separate from uh, missions or more evangelistic missions. But telling that story was important um, to see how that shift had happened for American evangelicals and, glo- and the global church. Um, and so uh, World Vision as uh, sort of started right after World War II and continued to to rapidly grow into what it is today. And it seems like in many ways they encapsulated that story for me. And um, they were willing to put up with me as I spent a lot of time working with them and uh, telling their story. And uh, and so I think it, it, it exactly right. It's a history that hopefully tells a large of an organization that hopefully tells a larger story. For people who don't know, uh, I assume as many people, because his name is not as well known as many as like Billy Graham or some other sort of important post-war evangelical figures. Who was Bob Pierce? And what, yeah, what was the sort of evangelical milieu out of which he emerged? I thought it was interesting that he comes out of Southern California, essentially, which <laughs> seems to be the site of a lot of dynamic evangelical activity uh, in the 20th century. Right. No. So, so Bob Pierce was the founder of World Vision, but he started off um, in that sort of Sunbelt, Southern California hotbed of, of, you know, of post-war evangelicalism. And uh, in some ways, was wanted to be an evangelist. Uh, he wanted to be Billy Graham, and and he actually came up alongside Billy Graham within the Youth for Christ movement that launched Billy Graham uh, in the '40s as well. And strangely enough, Billy Graham was supposed to go to Asia on a tour, an uh, evangelistic tour, and um, along with some of the other leading lights uh, at that time, and and couldn't make it. So Pierce jumped on a plane and went and. Um, saw the world in China. Uh, He had basically not been outside that, you know, he barnstormed and preached around uh, California and other kind of revivalistic tours, but hadn't really been out of the United States, hadn't seen poverty the way that he saw it um, in China um, post-1949. And then um, that he was, he talked about his own conversion at that point to, uh, to really using his calling to help um, particularly children in poverty uh, around the world. And so he came back home telling that story, uh, admonishing American evangelicals um, that, you know, sort of in a broader sense that they had to do something. Uh, And that's how he sort of started. Um, He became quite well known. He was really had a knack for for media and and public performance in a way. So after 1949, when um, when China closed uh, to sort of Westerners and missionaries, he eventually kind of you know got got a little bit lost to be honest, back and forth. Didn't know where his you know where he would find his next calling, and found himself in Korea right at the middle, right at the beginning of the Korean War. Um, started orphanages and then started, or you know, he, he was not the founder of this notion of child sponsorship. But man, he took off with it and sort of revolutionized that fundraising mechanism that made World Vision into one of the biggest organizations. That, that was amazing to me. I did, I did not know that. I had no idea where that concept had come from. But it's it didn't just revolutionize sort of um, a certain kind of relief 
uh, uh, fundraising, but it, 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 the sponsorship idea is used everywhere, <laughs> well beyond the bounds of evangelical Christianity. And it was that connection uh, that that sponsorship oftentimes nurtures, and is that that one to one relationship um, with the person that you're helping. You know, to be able to put that picture of, of a child that you sponsor on your refrigerator, uh, to be able to correspond with them in some way through letters, through pictures. Um, that that made a difference in how that fundraising relationship worked. Um, Essentially, was able to scale personal charity through sponsorship. But would that, would that be a good way to say it? I think that's yeah. I think that's exactly right. Yeah, uh, it's uh, and he saw himself as a. You correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, not just as an evangelist for uh, Christianity, but also somewhat for American ideals and principles. Would, would that be correct to say? Yeah, I, definitely so. I mean, he was a, a creature of his time, and so were most American evangelicals. And so he, you know, uh, it, when I talk with my students now and try to kind of tell them a picture of what the Cold War was like in the 1950s and 60s and beyond, it doesn't, they, they just, it didn't quite land. But, but Pierce in particular, um, even, you know, like Billy Graham and so many others was, was a was a creature of that time, and so it was oftentimes an, an American Christianity, an American exceptionalism, that was helping to shape uh, the world. So Christianity um, and democracy oftentimes went hand in hand together. And Pierce had a special relationship with the with armed forces. He would he had a, a sort of media correspondent uh, status, so he could. He was oftentimes, you know, um, preaching and teaching to the to the GIs, uh, American soldiers in Korea. The same time he was working um, on the front lines with uh, South Korean um, and North Korean troops too, particularly POWs. And this adventure streak, it, for some for some reason, Pierce was never happy at home and he struggled actually with home life. And it was a difficult story, um, and it's part of World Vision story, but. That sense of wanderlust and adventure defined him, probably defined the first few generations of World Vision and, and many of those sort of post-war American evangelical voices. And he was most happy jumping out of a plane, um, running up alongside, you know, uh, a leper colony he just discovered and, and promised them money. And then he had to go home and figure out how to raise it and get it there. Um, flying by the seat of his pants is, was what he thought God was calling him to. And when you put too much organization around it, that's when he felt uh, suffocated. Yeah. It's a distinct type, isn't it? Yeah. We, we still meet these people. Uh, and it's, they, they play a very distinct uh, and argue an important role in the world. Um, they can be very frustrating to be around and to try to keep up with. <laughs> and. <laughs> And organized for many nonprofits, and I mean, and, uh, you know, it, it is a he, he's clear clearly a founder. Um, there's a founder syndrome there for Pierce, maybe, but World Vision would later say that you know World Vision uh, could not have been founded um, without Bob Pierce. Uh, but at later point, they they kind of would go on record saying, but they it probably couldn't have sustained itself with Bob Pierce at some point. You know, to what extent did World Vision and other uh, evangelical relief agencies. Um, to what extent were they? Did they figure into the strategic thinking and planning of like America's foreign policy establishment? Uh, were they considered sort of like players to be moved around the chessboard to some extent? To some extent, although for the most part, uh, particularly in the in the in the fifties, uh, out in 
out of World War II, they were oftentimes uh, left out of the conversation. So, and many times they were they were looking they were looking in um, at a table that was set for for the mainline Protestants, uh, Catholics, and even to some extent Jews. Um, so that Judeo Christian uh, alliances that were built um, were were really set with religious leaders that were oftentimes really shaping uh, American foreign policy and the diplomatic core out of World War II and beyond. But um, over time, they gained access, but it, it was sort of hard-pressed. And, and someone like Pierce pushed really hard to get access. And so there are some great, great stories of the way that like sort of um, the, what become the International Christian Leadership Group, what would sometimes become... Um, uh, well, the, the forebears for the modern, modern Christian prayer breakfast, you know, the, the prayer breakfast, uh, presidential prayer breakfast um, network. Um, Pierce was a part of that network and tried to inculcate that with political leaders around the world. And he was very successful getting uh, access to the, you know, the prime minister of India, the, the president of South Korea. Um, and in many ways that gave him um entree or an argument that uh, he was an essential um, part of that foreign policy apparatus for the government as well. So World Vision now, uh, according to your own book, has a budget of over $2 billion, 42,000 employees. Uh, how'd that happen? Like, What were the key, just for our listeners, what were the key inflection points in the organization's history that led to that massive growth? Well, I do think, it, it, in, in so some sense, uh, they had to they had to institutionalize, and so w- after they did that, it kind of in their second to third generation, it really you see that massive growth coming in the nineteen you know nineteen seventies and beyond. Uh, so there are a few inflection points. One is they internationalized, and so World Vision International is a is an organization of about a hundred partner country offices. And so while the United States, the U.S. offices is by far the biggest and maybe makes up half, just under half of that multi-billion dollar budget, there are major other um, uh, institutions, uh, World Vision offices, Australia, New Zealand are, are really large across Europe. And then many of what used to be receiving countries, the, the, the Korean, South Korean office is quite large. So the international, that shared leadership, um, really made a difference. I would say another inflection point is, particularly in the 1980s, is that they were, um, they were, they exploded at the same time that, uh, no media, particularly television picked up on, uh, famine, you know. So think of in, um, in Ethiopia in the 1980, you know, 84, 85, the famines there, live aid. These kinds of conversations that really pointed to um, what now are disturbing images of of distended, uh, you know, bellies and malnutrition, and um, they really knew how to uh, engage in the in those media uh, and and use that to their advantage. So they grew really quickly in the 1980s. The other thing I think that's important to note is that they uh, began to engage with not only um, the U.S. government but also foreign governments and uh, bilateral aid organizations. So they were able to become a part of the larger humanitarian uh, network, the relief and development uh, base organizations that can receive grants from the Gates Foundation and the World Health Organization and 
uh, UNICEF and uh, the United Nations, as well as like USAID, that that really allows you to scale in massive numbers. Yeah, yeah, the, the numbers get much much bigger at that point. The, the, their story is one of becoming uh, going from an, uh, being a mission agency to a relief and development organization and. And you note that six of the seven largest evangelical mission agencies became, over time, uh, relief and development organizations. Um, uh, what, what does that tell us about the nature of, of maybe institutional logic or the nature of evangelicalism? Was it just the nature of the world at that time? What, why that transformation? I think the uh, I think you know if if the largest organizations so thinking at scale I think that you know those have moved more towards the larger the relief and development type of work um, so I think one level it's just that's where the resources are um, that's where arguably a lot of the needs are um, but I would say thinking through a, a missiological lens thinking th- more practical theology I think there's been some really interesting work that evangelicals themselves have done and and in opening up understandings of uh, evangelism or, holi- or, or a more holistic gospel. So thinking about both um, sharing an evangelical or evangelistic message alongside uh, the need for uh, physical, emotional, social, uh, sort of uh, basic human flourishing capacities in order to be able to, to live fully. And so making sure that you're not preaching to someone with an empty stomach, but more thinking of, of the both and. Uh, there, so, yeah, go ahead. It was, well, it's partly driven then just by experience in the field, you would say, that it was sort of like, oh, uh, you know, our understanding of the gospel calls us to something uh, larger here. Yeah, and I think it's often to, it's also a lot of pushback um, and reflective conversation from the global church. So World Vision's story is an important one to think about how global evangelicals were talking back to westernized countries and saying, like, look, um, that you we're not you don't need to be thinking of us in this way. We, you know, if we're in many ways, many of us in Latin America, we're we are Christian, right? Like so um trying to think about uh how to wed both evangelism and social justice, let's say in a way that fit within the evangelical tradition or the larger. Um, and there's a lot of debates that World Vision was central in about sort of defining the nature of evangelicalism within the global church. Um, and and I, I love to tell their story through that lens because whether it was the Lausanne movement or, or even more recent movements where maybe younger evangelicals are just as concerned with um, – Sex trafficking, uh, child welfare, other kinds of environmental justice. These are kinds of questions that are also important, as well as the more evangelistic, mission-driven approaches too. Can you um, can you talk about? Uh, I'll put you a little bit on the spot here because <clears throat> uh, this is not necessarily part of your of, of the book. But can you talk about the associational heritage of the American evangelical tradition. It's you know that that reshaping American society through voluntary associations has been central to the evangelical impulse since at least the early 1800s. Uh, what should people know about that history? These, in other words, like the kind of America's associational genius, if if there is such a thing, as Tocqueville argued, and our evangelical traditions are very much intertwined, aren't they? Oh yes, I think so. I think that's true. For I mean, as we talked about earlier at the beginning of the podcast with the the vibrancy of religious community in the United States in distinct ways is that 
particular uh, Tocquevillian uh, sort of point that he was making early on. And I think that's even more pointedly true. I think we know through history, through the evangelical tradition, you know, thinking back into the, into the 1800s in particular, a lot of those um, social agencies that were working towards abolition, that were working for education, uh, et cetera, um, were, were born out of that evangelical impulse. And I think there's a unique uh, voluntary uh, nature that, that's a component of, of the evangelical uh, framing. And so, you know, thinking outside of simply the, the theological traditions that, that, that define evangelicalism, but that the way that they associate, the way the evangelical tradition is oftentimes not so much defined by hierarchy and denominational identity, but it's more of it's more of that free free market model approach, that voluntary agency of non-denominational congregations, parachurch groups. I think that allowed them to succeed, particularly into the 20th century, as the mainline or other Catholic uh, Jewish organizations felt overly institutionalized. The the ability to kind of engage and reach out through media, um, through local associational work, made those organizations thrive um, and continues to be one of the ways that they uh, have been able to gain market share, um, if to use that language, over many other forms of religious organization. David, are you working on another book? I'm playing with some ideas, actually. So uh, I'm hoping to uh, be a bit on sabbatical next year and write about this, a more fuller picture of faith and philanthropy in the United States. A lot of the, the, the histories that we read about philanthropy in America um, know, just like you did, the religious, uh, the significance of religion um, in shaping the early nonprofit voluntary sector. But then as the Rockefellers and the Carnegies sort of secularize philanthropy, the way the story's told, it drops out of the picture. I'd love to tell the fuller picture there. Uh, and, and just the questions that you're asking, and you've done so much in your own work, we've been toying a lot with questions around philanthropy and, and the public good. Putting a question mark at the end of that statement yeah. and asking <laughs> what is the public good and when or how do we know if philanthropy does the public good? So working across uh, particularly some of the international context in which I'm interested in, they have very different uh, notions of uh, social welfare and, and, and democracy and let's say the UK versus the Scandinavian country um, that are oftentimes more critical of philanthropy uh, than maybe we are in the States. I want to engage in those conversations and I'm working on a project there too. But the kinds of questions you've asked uh, around civil society in your work and in, on this podcast are, are right uh, central to some of those questions. So I'll look forward to picking your brain and, and those who have been on, on those kinds of questions. Not, not much to pick on, but I look forward to reading. Uh, <laughs> I, I look forward to, to reading that and uh, engaging with you on that work. That, that's fantastic. Um, uh, I, I really look forward to it. Uh, David King, thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Jeremy. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much. David is, the uh, again, the director of the Lake Institute on Faith and Giving at the Indiana University Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. And before I let you go, David, where can people find Lake Institute and or you online? Yeah, you could, you could Google us, but um, we'd love to have you follow us on Twitter at Lake Institute. Uh, and and, I, and I'm, can, I'm there as well. Um, but Facebook or Twitter. 
Uh, subscribe to our newsletter, Insights, which comes out every, every couple of weeks where we try to curate a lot of the research and scholarship that we're finding um, and be able to share that back out with our, with our readers. Fantastic. Thanks, David. Thanks, Jeremy. Mm-hmm.